There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are in France, which means Tubi is more popular than cigarettes for breakfast. It's more popular than considering iced coffee a total abomination. More popular than loving political revolutions. More popular than mer and mer somehow being different words. Tubi, it's more popular than being French. See you in there. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. It's me, Kaya, Diara, and Sam, as usual, talking about the news that you might not have heard in the past week. And Annetta joins us to talk about what's going on with the protests as they continue all across the country. And then I sit down with Jamie Sullivan of Tell Me What to Do, a podcast on Lemonada Media to offer shared advice on listener questions. My only advice for this week is that therapy is amazing. Shout out to my therapist. He's great. I recommend therapy for anybody who has the option to have it today and also and also we need to fight for healthcare for everybody so that therapy is just covered for everybody that it is something that we believe in we make a commitment to and that we use i'm proud to go to therapy every week let's go hello everyone welcome to another episode of pod save the people i'm diara ballinger you can find me on twitter and instagram at diara ballinger and i'm sam sinyangwe at sam sway on twitter i am kaya henderson at henderson kaya on twitter and i'm dre at d-r-e-y on twitter so everyone i got a talking to last week for having a story that involved trump and this week now our banter is about Donald Trump in the executive order. So I don't, I don't know what to say to this, <laughs> say to this crew. <laughs> I don't know if I'm starting a trend or uh, we, I mean, we really couldn't pass up. I mean, this is kind of, you know, just leading us into the weekend is the thing that was um, everywhere. And I don't watch Fox News, obviously, but I have read that the Trump administration was all over the news today trying to defend this unconstitutional executive order where Donald Trump is essentially bypassing Congress um, and deciding to leverage his own kind of secondary post uh, relief package with COVID. We'll talk about just a little bit of what's there um, and also what's legal or what's not. Anyone have anything to say to jump in? Trump is trying to do things that no rational president would even attempt because they are so ludicrous, like they are so obviously unconstitutional, but he really doesn't care. He just is signing a piece of paper and expects that to be like the way that the world works. The challenge with it is, you know, first of all, the things that he is signing aren't good, but he's trying to make them sound good. So there was a $600 bump in unemployment uh, that is now being reduced if this executive order meant anything, it would be reduced to $400. So you actually get less money if this executive order is to mean anything, which constitutionally it should not. There are a whole lot of things that Trump is doing through administrative actions, through executive actions that do matter a whole bunch that are happening all at the same time that kind of makes this feel a little bit like a distraction. Because what he's doing with the post office, for example, is really putting people in that position, a new postmaster general, who can mess up this entire vote-by-mail system. Like, that actually matters a whole lot. So, you know, the executive actions are unconstitutional. I hope that this won't end up being implemented as if it is real, because if it does, that opens up the door for even more unconstitutional actions. And we know that Trump can't sort of help himself but do those things. There are so many things happening simultaneously that this does feel like it is it's so that it is a distraction. I'll say just to zoom out and think about what do the executive orders say, just to remember there are 30 million people right now who are on unemployment aid, which is a historic high. I mean, is that is a lot of people. And they have been receiving an extra $600 a week from the federal government on top of their state aid, which was around 300-ish uh, dollars a week. But Congress had set that to expire at the end of July, and like the end of July is gone, right? So the Democrats want to continue that at $600 a week. The Republicans, in their sheer terror, uh, they want to make it $200. So Trump's memo uh, calls for aid to restart at $400 a week. So you're like, okay, that's like a compromise, right? But here is the catch about the $400, is that the federal government is only paying 300 of those dollars, and then the states have to come up with the other 100 And you're like, well, I don't even know if you legally can force the states to do that, first of all. The other question is like, where is the money coming from, right? Like, you know, there are questions about like, 
can the president unilaterally even like pull that much money to do that? And what he is doing is taking $44 billion from the Department of Homeland Security's disaster relief fund that is used for hurricanes, tornadoes, and fires to be shifted over to unemployment. So we will see, you know, what Trump does it's so pernicious is that by the time the things get through the court, he's already started the process of making it happen, right? So this is a good example of him trying to like out left the left. What's even more nefarious is if the state doesn't come up with their $100, the federal government doesn't give anything. So for states that are really strapped, there is no unemployment continuance if the state can't come up with it. And the way the distribution has to happen, it requires most states to come up with a completely new unemployment distribution system, not the current system that they use. And so by the time states figure out how to pay for and implement a new unemployment distribution system and pick up the other $100, it is likely that people won't get anything. Many people will not see anything. And so a lot of this is sleight of hand. Same thing with the payroll tax deferment, which is an attack on Social Security and Medicare, because in fact, that's what payroll taxes fund. And we already have decreases to Social Security, or we're not getting money into Social Security and Medicare because so many people are unemployed. But now, if payroll taxes aren't being paid, that is another assault on Social Security and Medicare. And so there are all of these things that are happening. You look over here and see what I'm doing with my left hand, but there are all of these consequences going on with the right hand. All right, moving along. Let's get into some news. DeRay, kick us off. So I rarely go first, but I was fascinated by this. So you've heard the conversation about that there are going to be a lot of small businesses that just don't survive uh, coronavirus. You probably can already think of things in your neighborhood that are on their last leg, or you think about some of the chains that just are not going to be here because I, I don't even know what's going to happen to the fashion industry, for instance. Like, I just don't know how it survives this. But one thing I hadn't thought about was digital ads and the cost of digital ads. So there is research that just came out from a cybersecurity firm called Clixis, and they found that businesses are set to lose $15,000 this year, or a little over $1,000 per month, from fake clicks on their online ads. So I read this, and I'm like, what does that even mean? And I didn't think about, with these ads, like on Google, for instance, is that you get charged per click on the ad. So like you pay for your business to be featured when people search things like locksmith or a bicycle company or whatever. And then when people click on it, like that's when you get charged. So what's happening is that competitors are clicking on the ads of their competitors so that like they get charged every single time that click happens. And if you don't have a lot of business right now, and then you're you're getting like a $10,000 charge or even $1,000 a month for ads that like actually aren't bringing in any revenue, these little amounts actually add up in a moment where like revenue is not coming in. I hadn't even thought about that because remember when you get charged, like you've already budgeted this money for marketing with the idea that it's going to bring in money. And that's actually not the case. Uh, and I hadn't even thought about the cost per click as being a way that businesses, small businesses specifically, are going to get hit uh, in this moment. So I just wanted to bring it here. So the whole economy of the internet is fascinating to me, and especially like digital ads. Even you know when you think about data, and if you are building, for example, a program to help people run really huge data sets and compute complicated analyses, you get charged usually by a big company like Amazon, AWS, um, that does that computing power to run those analyses on your behalf. And so there are some really sort of nefarious ways in which competitors and, you know, Duray, like you were talking about with digital ads, competitors will sort of game the system to put disproportionate burdens on a competitor. Similarly, in sort of the data world, there are instances where um, you can sort of run your competitors' costs up by using their systems to run a whole lot of data. So there are all of these interesting sort of behind the scenes, uh, nefarious sort of corporate competitive strategies that are often at work. The other thing that's interesting to me is domains and web domains, like the whole economy of web domains and how people will like buy particular domains in advance, knowing that the value will go up and then charge people to get access to domains that are like their own name or their own company or website. So all of that is is sort of happening behind the scenes and that somebody's got to be making a lot of money off of this. 
I don't know who exactly it is, but there have to be people who just make millions and millions of dollars um, using these sort of tricks. To me, it reinforces what my grandmother used to say or what lots of people's grandmothers say, right? Necessity is the mother of invention. Even with these super high-tech tools, regular people find out, find ways to hustle the system. And I just had this picture in my head of the locksmith in Brooklyn who keeps clicking on his competitor's ads to drive his competitor out of business. As sophisticated as all of our systems are, it sometimes only takes a little bit of ingenuity to undermine them. Okay, my news this week is from the New York Times. I'm just on a kick. I'm on a kick talking about conservative things. But you know what? There's a method to my madness. So this week, Joe Arpaio, who is a notorious sheriff, he's kind of coined America's toughest sheriff. Um, This is somebody who for 20 years ran a tent city as an extension of the Maricopa County Jail in which he had, well, he did a couple things, ran a chain gang out of there, and um, had folks sleeping outside in temperatures up to 130 degrees. So he just lost a primary to actually the guy that served as deputy when he was sheriff, a man by the name of Jerry Sheridan. And the interesting thing about this whole thing is that, you know, when you look at Joe Arpaio and how kind of he was the showman around how harsh and abusive he can be around his tactics and his alignment with Donald Trump, like all of it, I think in his mind, he thought was going to win him this primary election. He outspent um, Jerry Sheridan, I think, 15 to one, and he lost. And so this is why this is important, because I'm sure you're thinking, why are we talking about this? wild person. But it's important because Maricopa County is one of the largest urban centers in terms of voting, right? So there's LA, there's Chicago, there's Seattle, and there's Maricopa County. And so it's Phoenix and then suburbs that surround Phoenix. And so it's important because no Democrat has really won on a presidential level Maricopa County since President Clinton in 1996. So we have had a rise in Democrats doing better and better statewide there. So 2018, we had four folks um, that went to Congress. One went to the Senate from Maricopa County. We're also seeing in this primary, for example, that even conservative or moderate voters are now kind of done with, or, or we're speculating, but they're done with this type of alignment with Trump and this type of Republican foolishness when it comes to representation of their party. Maricopa County is also important because when you think of Arizona as a swing state and our potential to be able to win Arizona, keep in mind Joe Biden is polling better than Donald Trump in Arizona. Um, And Maricopa County has 60% of the voters in Arizona. So it's a really important county and a county looking like that we may be able to win in 2020, knock on wood. Part of this is as we get closer, I think we're less than 90 days out to the election. You know, if I had to make an announcement in which the Biden campaign heard me, it would be, please invest in Arizona. Please invest in the Latinx voters in Arizona. Because I think um, given where we are from 2016, looking at 2018, and now with this primary result, it's looking good for us in, in Arizona. One of the things that I thought was interesting about this article was the age of the people running. So (laughs) he was a spry 88 years old. Mr. Arpeo is 88 years old running to be the sheriff. And that just really, it threw me for something. But then, and I don't know how old Mr. Sheridan is, but he is a 38 year veteran of the sheriff's department. So he's not exactly a spring chicken either. And I wonder broadly, not just in Arizona, but where are the young people who should be running for these offices? Where is the fresh new thinking? Where is the new blood? Where is the new perspective? We got to do better than this. My news comes from Rolling Stone, an anthropologist named Wade Davis out of the University of British Columbia writes an article called The Unraveling of America, How COVID-19 Signals the End of the American Era. Y'all, this article is sad. (laughs) It really is sad. And it talks about the fact that we're at a turning point in history where American exceptionalism is reduced to tatters, where whoever we thought we were in the world, whoever we have been in the world is over. That this pandemic has actually radically damaged the reputation and the international standing of the United States. Now we talked about that a little bit and the fact that our passports are trash and we can't go anywhere, right? But this is much, much 
worse than that. Um, this talks about us being members of a failed state ruled by a dysfunctional and incompetent government responsible for tremendously high death rates. It talks about the fact that for the first time in history, the international community had to send disaster relief to us for the first time, where American doctors and nurses were waiting for basic supplies from China. It talks about who we've been in the world, um, where we were during World War II, and how, in fact, post-World War II, given our ability to really respond to the crisis, to kick up manufacturing, to uh, be good and be better, after World War II, the United States had only 6% of the world's population, but half of the global economy, including 93% of all automobile manufacturing. And it ushered in a period of U.S. economic dominance, right? But after World War II, we never stood down on this war thing. In fact, we focused on war in ways that no other country has. Since the 1970s, China has not gone to war at all, and the United States has had not one day at peace. And so we've spent, since 2001, over $6 trillion on military operations and war, at the expense of our country. China was building its nation, pouring more cement every three years than America did in the entire 20th century. And so as a result of this, not paying attention to infrastructure and building the country and really focusing on war, our society has suffered. Post-World War II, domestic gun violence has increased. The real issue is that we've lionized the individual at the expense of community. The whole entire social fabric is broken. We don't have a common purpose. Family as an institution lost its grounding. We see divorce post-World War II. We abandon our elders and put them in nursing homes. We have complete dedication to the workplace and reinforced isolation from our families. And so we now are at a point where the United States consumes two-thirds of the world's antidepressants. And at the root of all of this transformation and decline is this ever-widening income inequality. We've pursued globalization, which is really about pursuing cheap labor. You've heard the statistics about CEOs making 400 times what their salaried staff makes. I found this interesting. Three, the three richest Americans have more wealth than 160 million Americans. And we know that that's even worse when you look at black families. But what COVID has done is, in fact, brought all of this to the forefront. And our handling of both the COVID crisis and the murder of George Floyd has effectively made us a laughingstock in the world with countries that we would be demonizing, now demonizing us. The real challenge that Wade Davis says is that we can't even see what has become of our country. We're actually 45th in the world for freedom of press, whereas we used to be a country that welcomed huddled masses. We actually prefer to build a wall than provide health care. And our freedom is our right to own an arsenal of guns, which trumps the safety of our school children. Individualism reigns, and we have abandoned community, we've abandoned society, and so nobody owes anything to anybody. No fun, we don't have fundamental rights. And most importantly, we can't lead the world on global threats like climate change when we don't have a sense of collective well-being or national community. It talks a lot about Canada being the people who live in the apartment above the meth lab. <laughs> um, but... Canada performed well during COVID because of the social contract, because of their bonds of community, because of their trust for each other and their institutions, especially healthcare, which caters to the medical needs of the collective and not the individual. Um, at the end of the day, Wade declares that for better or worse, America has had its time. He says that we cannot recover from this. And so it will be interesting to see what the future holds for America. You know, it is wild. Um just seeing all of basically everywhere other than the United States starting to really open up, starting to bring the number of COVID cases down to such a low level that it would be like unheard of in any state here. You know, New Zealand just 
celebrated their 100th day without any new cases of COVID, any community spread. Um, so it's totally doable. I mean, in fact, almost every country, if not every other country, has gotten a better handle on COVID than the United States has and that the Trump administration has, right? And this is really, you talk about failed states. You know, I, what is clear is that right now, in terms of our ability to handle coronavirus, we are dead last. That means something. There's a reason for that. That's not a coincidence. Um, it is the result of a political system, an economic system, that has failed to provide people with basic dignity, basic resources, right? Healthcare, jobs. And if you're not able to work, they provide you with enough so that you don't have to feel like you have to take on a side job and another side job. So all of these things are sort of a uniquely American construction. And that is not uniform across America either, right? Within that, we have to interrogate what are the ideologies, what are the cultures that have contributed to this mess as well. So, I mean, you look at Republicans in general, but in particular, folks who have sort of ridden for Trump since day one, and the Trump administration that is egging them on and saying, you don't have to wear a mask, and you don't have to do this, and you don't have to take your governor seriously when they say to stay inside and not to expose other people to coronavirus. It's institutions like Fox News that spread misinformation that encouraged people to go outside, that said there wasn't a problem. That's still on shows like Tucker Carlson still saying that this is overblown and that this isn't as big of a problem as it actually is, as the science shows it clearly is, as every other country's experience proves is. So again, this is entirely socially constructed. This was a crisis that was constructed. It was not inevitable. It was preventable. Um, to do that, to stop the next crisis and to get us out of this one, we have to be very clear about how we got here and how the way in which our society has been constructed for so long made us uniquely vulnerable to something like this and will continue to make us vulnerable unless we change the way that this country is structured, unless we introduce much greater equity so that people aren't uh, left in situations where they are vulnerable to coronavirus, where they are not, they don't have access to the healthcare that they need to get through this, where the society doesn't have the ability to provide people with the truth that they need to know how to conduct themselves in a pandemic and instead is giving them misinformation and allowing misinformation to flow through all kinds of platforms, both traditional news, Facebook, et cetera. So all of this, we saw how this happened. We have been over the past, I mean, I've been in New York City, it's been five months, uh, almost six months of quarantine, of lockdown, of barely ever going outside. So this is something that is just gonna keep going until we collectively throw out the people who got us here and put in place people who can competently lead and can hold us all accountable politically and economically to a better outcome. Holding corporations accountable, holding all of these different actors that got us here accountable so this can never happen again. So my news is about Iowa where this past week Governor Kim Reynolds signed an executive order that restores voting rights uh, to people who have felony convictions and have completed their sentence. Now this is important because Iowa is the last state that up until now permanently banned anyone with a felony conviction from ever being able to vote. You'll recall that Florida also used to do that, uh, and then Amendment 4 passed, which is currently being tied up in the courts in terms of its implementation. Uh, but Iowa has remained this outlier uh, in terms of felony disenfranchisement. And that disenfranchisement disproportionately impacts black people in Iowa. Uh, black people are 4% of the population and 13% of those disenfranchised. One in every 10 black people in Iowa is permanently banned from being able to vote up until this executive order passed. Now, the order does not impose a requirement that people pay off fines or fees prior to being able to vote, which is much better than what's going on in Florida. Uh, but there remain some exceptions. First of all, people who have not yet completed their sentence, people who are currently in prison uh, or probation and parole, do not have their voting rights restored. Uh, similarly, uh, there are still a set of convictions uh, that even if you've completed your sentence, uh, you don't get your voting rights restored under this order, um, things like manslaughter and murder. Now, big picture, while this is progress, it is a huge distance away from where uh, some other states are on this, namely Vermont 
and Maine, uh, and now D.C., uh, which have abolished felony disenfranchisement in its entirety. People there do not have to have their voting rights taken away um, just because the criminal justice system convicted them. And so that is good news. It is not a coincidence that it is happening now. It is uh, the result of organizing in Iowa for years to pressure the state government and state legislature and the governor into taking action. Um, The legislature still has not codified this into law, so it could be revoked by another governor. Um, So again, this is good, but there's a lot of work yet to do. For me, what was curious about this is why three years into her term and just a few months before the election, she decided to make this executive order that was interesting to me. It was also interesting to me that that a future governor could actually undo the executive order. And in fact, this is not the first time that this has happened. In fact, uh, Governor Reynolds' predecessor, Republican Terry Branstead, overturned Democratic Governor Tom Vilsack's 2005 executive order restoring voting rights. And so I'm wondering, what is this flip-floppy thing around executive orders, and can Iowa get serious about restoring people's rights and creating legislation so that this is a permanent thing and not something that happens on the whim of random governors? The thing that I'm struck by is that, Kaya, one of the reasons why uh, Governor Kim Reynolds, who is a Republican, uh, waited so long to do this is that for two years, she had been trying to seek a constitutional amendment to do it, and the Republican, her party, wouldn't budge, right? So then she just said, you know what, I'm going to do it on my own for 40,000 people. And it is interesting to think about, A, remember that the governors and mayors have way more power than any of us ever believe. Like they could, you know, most people, all the criminal justice stuff we care about is local and state. And if governors really care, they could just undo it if they wanted to. So like there's a lot of power. This is a reminder of the power of the governor. But also back to what I said about the Trump stuff is like there is a party. There is like they are quiet. They are not on the news every day. They are not on your Facebook feed. You don't know these people's names. It only takes a couple thousand. But I was looking at somebody we all like who I will not name who just got elected to Congress. And I was looking at those votes. It was like 8,000 votes. I'm like this is not – you know like because so few people vote in general especially in the primary – You'd be shocked at how some of these people get into Congress and then we're stuck with them forever because of their name ID. So when I think about this, like shout out to Kim Reynolds, but also like, wow, what a reminder of like the party. And Sam, I'll always remember something you said, I don't know, four or five episodes ago, you were like, the Democratic Party is becoming much more representative of the country, like not all the way there, but like getting better. And that the Republican Party is become whiter and more male. It's like such a stark contrast. And you literally see the white people and Tim Scott doing everything they can to make sure that the people of color, the queer people, women have no power at all. You know, I don't know if I want to give Kim Reynolds a shout out at all. (laughs) At all. Come on, Diara. In May... COVID cases in Iowa were on the rise, 1,000 cases a day of COVID. And she's sitting with Donald Trump in his office saying, there's not a problem. No, no to Kim Reynolds. And the other thing is, because Kaya, to your point, I had the same feeling. I'm like, why did homegirl do this? Why did she really, really do this? The organizers on the ground, these young folks were showing up. And as I read, were showing up at Kim Reynolds' house. They were outside of her office. They were protesting outside of the Capitol. They just persisted and persisted. And that's who got this done. If you, I mean, I'm speculating a bit, but just from some, uh, you know, a little bit more digging that I did because I had the same question, Kaya, that's what I found. I feel like the pressure was on. For her, the strategy is, okay, well, you know, now they have all, you know, they're going to have to get all these folks registered and get them to the polls. Good luck. So, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. Sam, keep us posted, but... Mm. You know what? Let me take my shout out. Let me take my presumptive <laughs> shout out back. Okay. Governor Reynolds, I didn't know. That's why we talk about it. Let me well, take this my- This is the other thing. Sam, remember Sam, when I dragged you slash you came willingly because you're yep, wonderful yep. to Iowa. We were in Iowa in January and it was right before the primary. So it's also- Wait, just, y'all were together? Yeah, yep. we were. We do stuff. So <laughs> <Yeah>. we- <laughs> 
<laughs> so, but what was We're just kicking it in Iowa. Like, Diana texted me and was like, you want to hang out in Iowa? I was like, yeah, I'll be there, like, in four hours. Like, it's cool. Oh, wow. Okay. But we were I'm talking just... about this very issue, and we saw and met with so many of, you know, so many organizers who had been working on this for so long. But also to be living in Iowa, to be an Iowan during the primaries, during caucus, like, you cannot turn your head without seeing anything around voting. So the fact that this is the last state to do that is also just like so wild to me, just given like the political context that Iowa holds um, within our elections. Don't go anywhere. More Politics the People's coming. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are influencers on the internet which means Tubi is more popular than sponsored posts for digestive enzymes and high-coverage foundation. More popular than soft-launching your boyfriend. More popular than making boomers explode with rage when you tell them how much you make on a single post. Tubi, it's more popular than influencers. See you in there. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, They sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stresses happening, big and small, and when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. ATLP.com slash people. And now we're checking in with Netta for a quick update regarding the current state of the protests. Hey, everybody, it's me, Netta, and thanks so much for tuning back in. How I'm feeling is, for better or worse, depends on what's happening in the world. So last week, I thought St. Louis County Prosecutor Wesley Bell's decision to not bring charges against Darren Wilson was how we were going to bring in the six-year anniversary of Mike's shooting death. And I was both angry and sad about that, as you heard on last week's show. But St. Louis City had other plans. Tashara Jones, Kim Gardner, and Cori Bush walked away with the wins in the Democratic primary. Seeing and feeling the joy among other protesters and supporters of the candidates definitely lifted my spirits this week. I am grateful to have made it to year six, especially when so many of the people we were on the front lines with did not. 
sometimes I deal with survivor's remorse. Sometimes I can't believe that this is what six years actually feels like. I had no idea when I walked outside on August 9th, 2014, that this would become my life's work. There's no such thing as an overnight overhaul, and we're really in this until the end. Struggle is our inheritance, but I would like to actually pass down something else to the next generation. A comment about my segment last week is on my mind. Before I kick this off, I want to say again that the LZ household is a voting household. I ruffled a few feathers last week when I mentioned correctly that Missouri was under Democratic control the day that Michael Brown Jr. was killed six years ago and remained under Democratic control when the world watched police brutalize us every night on national television. Last week, there were some who had issues with my segment. A listener wrote into the show saying that he was half asleep listening to the latest podcast, but believed that he heard one of the female voices on the show discussing opting out of the voting process and discussing how the Dems and Republicans are the same. Seriously, 90 days out and we are doing this again. Lack of minority turnout in 2016 was a factor in putting this idiot into the White House. I find it unfathomable that your podcast is starting this both sides bullshit this close to the important election in our nation's history. Ridiculous. Why the hell are you sowing doubt about voting in a podcast this close to the election? He went on to write, If you cannot distinguish at this point a difference between the parties, then I guess we are all going to be stuck with this authoritative psychopath for four more years. Quote, And I'm not normally one to respond to the critiques made in bad faith. However, as we head into the general election, this deserves some attention because this type of talk directed at black people and black women specifically is the type of behavior on the left that needs to be addressed and uprooted immediately. Blaming Trump's win on the lack of minority turnout is a tried and true trope that ignores inconvenient political and socioeconomic realities for black and other people of color. Aren't we always the scapegoat? While minority turnout was down from 2008 and 2012, I'd like to remind everyone that the current occupant in the White House won the white vote by 15 points, according to a 2018 article by the Pew Research Center. And according to some current polls, 50% of white voters plan to vote for he who shall not be named again. None of this happens in a vacuum. White voters have been consistently fleeing the Democratic Party since the 60s and the passage of the Civil and Voting Rights Acts. A Democratic presidential candidate has not won the white vote since Lyndon Johnson was president. If you are a white person and consider yourself an ally, an anti-racist, or just simply a good person who cares about equity, organizing and changing the hearts and minds of your friends and relatives would go much further than threatening black voters with another Trump term. Start where you are. Shake the table at your family gatherings and at the water coolers at work. Before chastising black and other voters of colors for not being enthusiastic, are you willing to spend your own social capital and risk your social standing to stand with us? And if not, why not? Simply telling us to go vote ignores two other things. What are candidates offering black voters as a whole and skeptical black voters specifically? But this also ignores the many structural issues that impede our paths to the poll. Voter suppression is real. Jobs that may not give workers time off to vote are also real. Seeing long lines of black voters who are waiting literally hours to cast a ballot because polling locations have been closed or voter machines don't work isn't an inspirational story. It is an institutional failure. I also want to touch on the idea of quote unquote both sides. And I want you all to hear me clearly. American racism and white supremacy is a bipartisan exercise. Black folks have done poorly under Democratic and Republican administrations alike. To many of us, it is both sides. When your material conditions never change, when you live in some of the worst neighborhoods with underfunded schools, over-policing, polluted air, and a home that may literally contribute to your death— Voting may not feel like the solution. Black people see bad times with Democrats and bad times with Republicans. How could they conclude anything else? 
it might be an election to you, but for us, it is life. And that was my point last week. While the LZ household is and has always been a voting household, I fully understand why people opt out of participating. Many people cannot distinguish between the two parties. And even having the ability to follow politics in depth, including this podcast, is a privilege that everyone does not have. Finger wagging at black people and telling us to vote or else is simply tired. Giving black and other people of color something to vote for is a much better proposition. When politicians convince skeptical voters to put their hopes in them and don't follow through on promises, as Wesley Bell did last week when he declined to charge Darren Wilson with the murder of Mike Brown, that broken promise makes it that much harder for people to get up and show up the next time. As difficult as it can be to get skeptical and disaffected voters to show up to the polls, I am encouraged by what happens when candidates and movements reach alignment. We've seen that throughout this primary cycle, and St. Louis just gave us another example last week. Cori Bush, who was out on the protest lines with us in Ferguson, soundly defeated longtime Congressman Lacey Clay in a rematch from their 2018 Democratic congressional primary. Bush was there for people when no election was on the line and used her skills as a nurse to tend to protesters injured by police. She showed up for us, and voters in Missouri's first congressional district showed up for her. I think we also have to recognize the significance of this moment in the proverbial passing of the torch. 34 years after a boy from Troy who participated in the civil rights movement was elected to the House, a nurse from St. Louis who was involved in the protest movement that sparked this current moment is headed to the House of Representatives. Our generation doesn't have the next John Lewis. It has the first Cori Bush. And she won't be alone. She'll be joined by the likes of Jamal Bowman and Mondaire Jones in New York and hopefully Candace Valenzuela in Texas. There's still more work to be done, but imagine what we can do all over this country if we had more Corys, Candaces, and Jamals in our city councils, on our school boards, and in our state houses. That's a change I and many others like me can believe in, get behind, and vote for. Until next time, see ya. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere, there's more to come. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are in France. Which means Tubi is more popular than cigarettes for breakfast. It's more popular than considering iced coffee a total abomination. More popular than loving political revolutions. More popular than mère and mère somehow being different words. Tubi, it's more popular than being French. See you in there. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley. For the love of home. Today I'm chatting with Jamie Premax Sullivan. She's the host of Tell Me What to Do with Jamie Premax Sullivan on Lemonada Media. It's sort of like an interesting audio therapy type deal. Listeners share their questions and quandaries, and Jamie gives them advice. She also seeks out advice from the show, occasionally bringing on experts to help her. Today we sit down to answer some listener questions of our own. Let's go. Jamie, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thank you so much for having me. Now, this is different for us because you are a podcast host and you have a new podcast uh, that is an advice podcast, which, you know, we've never had a, an, like an advice person on. Your show is called Tell Me What to Do. Before I ask you some questions about advicey things, 
how did you get to do a show about it? Like, what was the pathway to this? I was a publicist for 10 or 11 years and transitioned into a writer-producer. And I wanted a producer credit. And in Hollywood, there's something called precedent. And it's really hard to get. It's the chicken and egg, sort of what comes first. And so I had an idea for a TV show because I was a Jersey girl living in Birmingham, Alabama. And I knew Fish Out of Water and comedy played really well on reality television. So I packaged a show called Jersey Bell and sold it to Bravo. And essentially, my purpose for doing that was not ever to become famous. It was really to get a producer credit, which was great because they gave me a producer credit. I produced eight hours of unscripted television, which was huge for my resume at the time in 2014. Um, But what I noticed then at the time was the social media environment for Bravo was really toxic. It was women against women, and it was nonstop gossip and judging women for how they looked and who they married and how much money they had. And I, not to go too far back, but my dad died when I was 17 and I kind of spiraled out of control. I was the uh, quintessential roughneck Jersey girl, just fighting and causing trouble. And I was like a bully. And so I spent a significant part of my adolescence through my 20s before I got saved, like beating people up, which is really not cool. And so when I got saved and started to do the work and heal myself because I really subscribed to the whole, like, if hurt people hurt, then heal people heal. Um, When I saw the social media environment for Bravo, I was like, oof, these are not my people. Like, I can't rock with this at all. So I started this Facebook series called Coffee Talk one day. I just, in my pajamas with a cup of coffee, was like, hey, guys, welcome to Coffee Talk, where we can talk about things that are uplifting and We can pour into people and we can unite people and we can build bigger tables and we can raise better children. And if you rock with that, then come sit with me because I can't really do the other thing. And Coffee Talk went from eight people to 18 people to 80 people to 800 to 8,000 to 80,000. Now we're at 600,000 and I do it every single day. I've done Coffee Talk every single day, even when my dog died, when I was in a plane crash, like I've never missed a day, and I've done it for six years. So through Coffee Talk, it was just honest, open conversation about mistakes I've made and wrongs made right and how to love women back to life and be like, listen, no matter what race you are, religion you are, size you are, socioeconomic status you are, how you vote, whatever it is, if you're good or you want to be better, there's a space for you here. And it became a very inclusive community for women online, which at the time, there wasn't really anything. And I'm not prolific. I'm not these amazing women like Brene Brown and, you know, these women who just exude goodness. I am really a roughneck. I have a very different come up. I, you know, I'm bisexual. I talk to people about how to speak to their kids, you know, when their kids come to them and say, you know, I feel some type of way. I was raised Jewish. Now I'm Catholic. I mean, I feel like I've I've lived 10 lives. The word advice to me makes me nervous because it sounds like I always know what I'm talking about. Most of the times I don't. I'm just like, look, I've already been through that. So if you want to know how this story ends, pull up a chair because I'm about to tell you like how this is going to go. I thought, God, wouldn't it be great if I could do a podcast because my fans have been asking me for a podcast for a long time. Wouldn't it be great if I could tell people what to do? That's cool. But like if sometimes people could tell me what to do, because I've spent six years pouring into other people for every single day. And I've kind of let my needs and my learning take a back seat to helping other people learn and catch up and find their way. I get lost sometimes, you know, like I make wrong turns. As I learn, I can help other people learn. I got to give back, DeRay. I was not good in my 20s. I was bad. What advice do you have for people who are struggling, especially white people who are struggling to talk about race, who are nervous to talk to their parents or their family members or their friends about race because it is, quote, a divisive issue? You have to know it's divisive going in. We hold on to this, like, grain of hope that maybe the conversation will be painless And then we set ourselves up for disappointment. It's all about expectation. You have to know the conversation is going to be divisive and difficult before you go in. And you have to decide what your short-term goal is for the conversation and then what your long-term goal is. 
Because if you're going into a conversation to try to change somebody's mind, you're going to lose. White people, and I can only speak for white people, we don't want our minds changed. We want to be right. You know, my own mother, for example, has drank the Kool-Aid. It's been very difficult for my family. It's been heartbreaking for me. But what I've been able to do is connect with her in a human way that doesn't feel like she's going against her leader, but I've found ways to connect with her as a mother. Because if I try to go at her about Trump or the divisiveness or Obama, if I try to go top line, big picture, she shuts down. But if I speak to her about the details of the murder of Breonna Taylor, and I humanize Breonna, and I explain to her that Breonna has a mother who wants justice for her daughter. That is something that is a bite-sized thing my mother can relate to. It's not a race issue for her. It is a mother issue for her. And so I have my 73-year-old white Republican voting mother making calls for Breonna Taylor twice a week. You have to just know what it is you want to accomplish and just know It's not going to be easy going in because if you don't have an expectation set, you're going to be disappointed. In a similar vein, what do you say to people who are also struggling about how to talk about issues regarding sexual abuse and sexual harassment that I, you know, you like I have probably heard or seen definitely online people say, you know, the Me Too movement and conversations about sexual harassment are unfairly targeting men that, you know, if it was really a problem, people would be in jail or like that whole narrative, you know, is definitely an undercurrent that's happening. People might not be loud about it, but they definitely are saying it. What do you say to people who are navigating spaces like that? Um, I can, again, I I can speak for myself. When I was 16 years old, I was date raped by a very popular boy in high school. I approached the situation intellectually as opposed to emotionally and understood that he was very popular and I had done everything wrong, not to dismiss his actions (laughs) by any stretch of the imagination, but I knew how it would look in his house late at night, in his bedroom. What did you expect would happen? What did you think he would think? All of those things. So I didn't speak because for me, I felt like the details were stacked against me. You know, a lot of times with women, we're, we're told if you're jogging you know, down a trail or you're walking through a dark stairway and someone grabs you, that's rape. But if you put yourself in a situation where you should have been quote unquote smarter, that's your fault. And I think what's happening now is a lot of women are looking back and going, wow, my inner voice was wrong. My inner voice wasn't protecting me. My inner voice was protecting them. And now I have an opportunity to speak out. Uh, What do you say to people who are like, you know, I don't think I'm going to vote. I don't think that this matters. What's your advice to them? Well, I'll tell you what doesn't work. What doesn't work is shaming them. It's your civic duty does not work. It's your duty as an American. None of that works. Because let me tell you what else is your duty as an American. Donating blood. You know how many people don't ever donate blood? Some people would say enlisting in the military is your duty as an American. You know how many people don't do that? (laughs) I can tell you that shaming people into voting will never work. What I have found works to incite people to vote is saying, look at the people that you care about. This election may not mean anything to you, but how can your vote help people you care about? And then they start to think, do you have gay friends that you love? If you do and you want them to be able to get married or stay married or have civil protections under the same civil laws you and I have, could you cast a vote on behalf of them? Are you against abortion and you have no skin in the game? You don't really care one way or the other who wins because president doesn't affect you. Maybe you cast your vote for a more conservative candidate for that cause. You know, I, I try to meet people where they are and say, look, you're lucky if the elections don't affect you. Don't shame people because they shut down. Shame does not work. Ridiculing them, belittling them, shaming them, it will not work. But appealing to their sense of community sometimes works, I think. Sometimes a little education. Hey, you may not know, for example, that Joe Biden is one of the most conservative Democrats 
if you look at his voting record, you know, people a lot of times hear, I'm, I'm using Biden as an example, but they hear Biden with Obama and they think, I don't want that again. And I say, well, you know, I'm just educating you. Obama chose uh, Biden as his vice president because he needed a very conservative leaning Democrat. If Hillary was not the right candidate for you because you didn't like Hillary or you were not a fan of the Clintons, I respect that. I just want you to know that if you're looking for a conservative candidate, but you want to protect the civil rights and liberties of others, Biden may be your guy. The other thing that works a lot of times is commitment. Inherently, as people, we don't like to say we're going to do something and then not do it. It makes us feel bad. It's something we carry inside. People don't necessarily know if we don't do it, but there's something psychologically about saying we're going to do something and then not do it. People tend to be more likely to go through with things if they say they will. It's a psychological move, but it works. So I would say things like that. What I would say is I believe people should vote on a local level, on a regional level, and on a national level. I believe that because I like to have an opinion and I like to hold people accountable. And it is hard for me to feel like I can say too much or hold people accountable if I know I was not part of the process. So when people ask me why I vote, I say that because I'm loud and I have an opinion and I like to hold people accountable. I like to be part of the process. I'm not a sit this one out kind of girl. For me, I can't, you can't lean one side or the other in trying to get people to vote. It's either a democratic process or it isn't. So I just try to appeal to people, what is your reason for voting or not voting? And then I say, okay, you don't want to vote because you don't like either candidate. Is there an issue that matters to someone you love? And usually if I can get them to connect with that and get them to kind of agree that, so I'm like, okay, great. DeRay needs this vote. You love DeRay. Awesome. Will you vote for DeRay? Will you cast your vote to help him? And then they're like, yeah, all right, I'll do that. And I'm like, great. Then at least I feel like I've done something. Going to a whole nother vein. You know, I don't often get to talk to an advice person. Um, somebody had a question about, about their boyfriend. So she wrote, my boyfriend of 10 years and I just built a house together. Anytime I bring up money logistics, he gets defensive because he's, quote, lived on his own since he was 18, whereas I'm just leaving my parents' house for the first time in my life, and I've always had the security of my dad paying my mortgage and the bills. So it is scary for me. I like to have a list and I balance my checking account three times a week, and he's a fly-by-the-seats-of-his-pants type guy. How do we find common ground? You don't. You keep your money your money, and you keep his money his money. You build your own credit. You do your own thing financially. Nobody says because you're sharing a bed, you have to share a bank account. That to me is a bizarre old 1950s. I keep the house. I don't make any money. So I have to kind of do it your way mentality. My husband and I have been married, I don't know, 13, 14 years. You know, we have separate bank accounts because if he's going to trash his credit, I mean, now we're married, so I'm legally bound to certain financial fidelities, obviously, but I build my own credit. I secure my own finances. I do my own thing. We can build a life together. We can raise a family together. We can share a bed. We do not have to share a checkbook. So this notion that like you have to turn yourself inside out to do it his way and like find common ground. No, Mm -mm, absolutely not. Say to him, no problem. You do your thing, get your own bank account, manage your own checkbook, Fly by the seat of your pants all day long, Superman. I'm doing it my way. I'm going to make my lists and balance my checkbook and keep all my stuff straight. And I'm going to do it the way that makes me comfortable. And since you're a new podcast host, uh, do you have any advice for people on starting a podcast? A podcast is a real commitment. And DeRay, I know you can speak to this because you've been doing it three seasons now and you're amazing at what you do. It's a commitment like anything else. If you're looking at it like a hobby then you need to be honest with your listeners. Like, hey, this is a hobby. Some weeks I'm going to post an episode every week. Other times I may go two months because this isn't my job. I think it's, again, it goes back to expectation. Let people know what to expect. Decide what cadence works for you. Surround yourself with good people. Be prepared for the conversations you're going to have. Dead airspace on a podcast is like a root canal. It's miserable. And if you're not a great editor, you don't have a great editor, it sounds a lot like, uh, 
the, you know, and nobody wants to listen to that. So I think preparation, treating it like a real piece of art, not to sound like hokey, but treating it with the respect that listeners have come to expect with how great some of these podcasts are. Also, like, make sure it fits your personality. One thing I love about Tell Me What to Do is down to the jingle or whatever you call that intro music, you know, like the artwork for it. It all feels so authentically Jamie. And I'm so grateful for that because it makes me want to make great podcasts. It makes me want to do great work. So that would be my advice. Yeah, it, you are. It's so much more work than people think. People think you just like it just pops on the internet. You're like, no, this is so much harder than that. <laughs> oh my god! Um, yeah, no. And what do you say? You know, somebody else wrote in and wanted to know about uh, parenting in the time of COVID. So, what do you say to people who are they've been in the house for a long time? Kids haven't been at school. People are getting restless. Kids are getting restless. Parents are getting restless. The pets are getting restless. Like, what is your advice for people? There's a part of parenting that is mentally exhausting because you are hyper aware. It's like the toddler phase, right? When they're learning to walk, they're putting everything in their mouth, they're falling down, you know, they can drown in the bathtub. You know, everything requires a hyper awareness. You know, you got to be, your senses are on fire when you have a toddler. You hear noises that aren't there. You see, like, it's crazy what happens to you when you have a baby and a toddler. And then they become self-sufficient. They start dressing themselves. They can chew without choking. You know, they, they start showering by themselves and you relax. Your senses go back to normal, right? You're like, okay, I'm coasting. Like I got this, right? Like I'm doing this parenting thing. And then Corona hits and you're back up in that heightened toddler space. What did they touch? Did they wear a mask? Who were they around? Did they stand six feet apart? Did they touch a doorknob? Wash your hands, use hand sanitizer. And it's mentally exhausting. To those parents, I say, you are not alone. We are all like dealing with anxiety, crazy dreams, weight loss, weight gain, like that hyper vigilant parenting that keeps your cortisol and your adrenaline running at almost toxic levels. You got to put your mask on before you put your mask on your kid. Because what's happening to parents is we are crashing and burning because we are hypervigilant trying to protect everybody in our household. We're not sleeping. We're eating bad food. We can't concentrate. We are irritable. Our sex drives are diminishing. We're drinking too much. Like mothers right now specifically are crashing and burning. And it's because we are in that heightened state of parenting that many of us have not been in for years. And we are expected to operate at this heightened state uh, of alarm, of concern, 24 hours a day. So put your mask on, take care of yourself. The second thing I would say to that is you have, unfortunately, moms, we have to stay vigilant. I know it sucks, especially after what I just said about how we are crashing and burning, but like, it won't be forever. It may be another six months, but it won't be forever. And we have to stay vigilant because younger people are being diagnosed with this virus every day. And yes, 75% of them recover after mild symptoms or even being asymptomatic. But the other 25% require long-term care. They're having PCOD lungs at 19. They are dealing with swollen joints and migraines and all kinds of things that as parents are terrifying to us. And they're spreading it faster than older people because they move more than older people. So we, we have to stay hypervigilant. You know, when I was little, we used to drive from Jersey to New York City and I hated the tunnel. And I would be like, dad, you know, as soon as we would get into the tunnel and he would give me markers all right, Jay, this mark. Okay, there's the Jersey-New York line on the side of the Holland Tunnel. See it? Now you know we're in New York. We're halfway there. And then I, you know, he would say, see the red lights at the top? And I would kind of mark the journey through the tunnel to get through it. And that's what I try to do with COVID as a mom. I'm like, okay, we got to get through the summer. This is, you know, I give myself markers. Then, then school's going to start. That's a different fear. It's a different hypervigilance. It's a different 
approach, right? I need a new marker. How am I going to do this? And I just keep pushing those markers back and try to remember that through all of this, families are healing. We're spending more time with our kids. We're spending more time with God. You know, the earth is healing. There are good things that we can look at through this. But just to any mom going through this, I know how exhausted you feel by three o'clock and you don't know why. And it's because your adrenaline's been going nonstop for six months. And it's a lot. It's a lot. And it's taxing on your mind and your body. And I'm <laughs> me too, sis. Me too. No, thank you. I can't wait to uh, to see your podcast continue to grow. It, I remember when I started one and Lord knows the beginning was hard. Um, I'm just grateful to know you and really grateful to have been a guest on this awesome podcast. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. People think the new fresh fragrances from Glade are fresher than fresh, like artist Priscilla. This smells like houses in the Hampton Champagne toast down in Brazil Smells like anything you think could happen Probably will Explore the new Glade Fresh Collection today.